Hi there. My name is Mireya Perez, and I aspire to create a platform where language service providers can tell their stories and where listeners can find inspiration and creativity. This podcast is dedicated to you, the language professional that desires to listen to the journeys of others in order to create their own path and personal branding. Here, I'll feature an array of guests from all fields of interpretation, as well as translation, willing to share their stories with you. Join me as we embark on professional and personal development by telling our stories. This is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Hi there. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. So glad you could join me today. I'm actually excited for you to listen to this episode because it's just jam-packed with so many nuggets of information that I personally found very inspiring and engaging. I hope you do too. Before we begin though, I do have a bit of a disclosure for you. Today's guest joins us all the way from Barcelona, so please excuse some of the audio glitches you'll hear along the way. I hope the overall messages resound much louder than those annoying audio disturbances I wasn't able to edit out. Anyway, back to our guest. After a 20-year career in education, ranging from language teaching to teacher training, Andrew Morris became a translator in 2009, five years followed by learning the ropes, establishing his business, and then acquiring clients, both agencies and direct clients. It was in 2014 that he began to post regularly in social media, more often than not on themes relating to freelancing, carving out a career to suit individual passions, and standing out from the crowd. Six years later, he's still writing and now heads up the external communications policy of prose.com, which enables him to enjoy a mixture of writing, teaching, coaching, and community management, all while continuing to run his translation business. He lives and works in Barcelona and is married to a coach. So, without further ado, here's Andrew's story. Andrew, thank you so much once again for being here with us today. I really do appreciate you accepting the invitation to being on the podcast, and I can't wait to get started. My pleasure. Andrew, let's go ahead then and, uh, if you would, share your story with us. Okay. Hello, everyone. So My name is Andrew Morris, and I'm a translator, and I'm at the moment on what I think of as my third career. So going back, I was born in Wales, which is where my rather strange accent comes from, because I've spent 33 years outside of Wales, more than that, 35 years. I was good at languages at school, like just about everybody else. I went off to Oxford University to study French and German. And then after that, I embarked on a career being something of a traveler in English language teaching. So I started out in China. I then went on to Turkey, Slovakia, Eritrea in Africa, 
the Czech Republic, Germany, and taught adults in all those places, and also did a master's in education along the way, where I did a master's in teacher training, and then became a trainer. So I was working with teachers of English in various countries. And then after that, I became a trainer trainer. So actually looking at the methodology of training itself. So that was a long spell in education, which lasted 23 years. What's interesting about it is that you don't stay, if you're, if you're somebody who wants to help others, you don't often end up staying in the classroom all of that time. So it was natural for me to want to move up the ladder. But that was also my downfall in a way, because I ended up after 23 years working in the Ministry of Education in Bangladesh in charge of the national training program. So nowhere near a classroom, nowhere near students, but dealing with bureaucrats and politicians. It was a long way from where I'd begun and a long way from where I wanted to be. And so that's when I became a translator, which is exactly 11 years ago today, May the 1st. And yeah, happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I became a translator and started out like everybody else, looking for work on prose.com, who, of course, I now work for, and making mistakes, uh, giving work away for, for too little money, I think, at the beginning, once or twice. But I began to work the system to use the blue board and went through two or three or four years where I began to amass quite a good number of agencies. I think I had maybe 12, 15 agencies until the point where, and also some direct clients at the very beginning. And about six years ago now, I made a move to what is a kind of side move to what is now my kind of third career, which is facilitating, bringing groups of translators together, communicating some ideas, um, some posts, some questions with them, and generally managing a group at the moment of 37,000 for pros.com and helping through the way I write, through the way I speak, through the way I try to be, helping them develop as translators and as freelancers, moving towards being the best version, as we say, the best version of themselves as freelance business people that they can be. Andrew, talk to us a little bit about what about the transition between the classroom and going outside of that and working, you know, in with these politicians and politics and bureaucrats. What about it you felt just you weren't making that connection? I think that if there's well, there are two threads running through my life. One is language because I've I've learned I'm on language number 17 right now. I don't, can't speak them all. I've forgotten some, but that's been a red thread running throughout my life and the other one has been teaching educating and i'm good at it i'm good at communicating my ideas and i'm good especially with people when i'm face to face with them whether it's speaking on stage or in a classroom i like that atmosphere i like to watch people learn because learning is about development and one of my key things in life is teaching people helping them learn when i began to work in the ministry i was dealing with people and systems and institutions. And that requires a totally different skill set. There you need to be able to think strategically over several years. Our meetings were about how do we get 25,000 teachers trained by 2022? Which institutions? How do we move these people around the country? What's the logistics? And it was a far cry from how do we learn and how do we teach? And how do we help individuals get better at what they do, which has always been my passion. 
So I just began to feel alienated from myself. And work is a central part of my life. I mean, central to all of us in the sense that we need it. But I think in my personal hierarchy of values, work is far more important than anything else. And so when I begin to feel I'm not enjoying my work or I'm not doing it as well as other people could because ministry officials are talented at that kind of strategic five-year planning. Not my, it's not my talent at all. So I began to feel miserable in my job. The first experience ever of watching the clock crawl through a day, couldn't wait to get outside because I, I was a musician. So I played music saxophone in the evening. And I lived these two lives of hating work and desperate to get out and play music in the studio. And that's just not where I wanted to be in life at aged well, mid-40s. And I thought I've got to get out of this career because the only options that were available to me were more of the same. I would have moved country because there are these training jobs and consultancy jobs all around the world and always will be. So I would have gone to Albania or to Malawi or any other country and kept on doing the same thing. And I just could not face another 25 years of doing that. Yeah. And then you transition into the world of translations. What was the moment, do you recall, that you remember saying, what about translating? My parents had a house in France, in a small village in Provence, which is a beautiful part of the country. And they'd often told me about it. And my plan was to go there, to buy the house off them and simply to set up there. And I had no idea when I made the decision to to retire to, to resign from my job and leave education, or at least what I thought was leaving education, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I mean, I wish I could say, like many translators, that this has been what I wanted to do all my life, but simply not true. I thought I might become a gardener or a baker or something like that, even though I can't garden or bake. I just thought I have to go to France, I have to arrive there, and I'll see where life takes me, which would have been a disaster if I'd done that. Luckily, my mother, who knows me better than I know myself, said, what about translation? She's never been in the language industry. She knows nothing about that. But it planted a seed. Then I began, while still in Bangladesh, to go online. I found pros in the first few hours of searching translation. So I joined up with that because by now I was going to be a translator and nothing was going to stop me. So that idea had been planted. I then did a distance course from Ireland, which was very good on the art of translation rather than the business. And I began to even apply for a few jobs on prose in my free time, got a couple of jobs, made a few mistakes, didn't get paid for my first ever job. So that was the hard way to learn. But by the time I came to France, I was, I talked also, and this is very influential for me. I'd talked to a few translators who I managed to locate in France and asked them the most basic questions. And they gave me generous, long responses on how do you charge by the hour, by the day, by the year, by the page, by the word. I had no idea on that side. And I got some really excellent detailed answers. And that has influenced me very much in the way that I run the groups that I now run. So as not to exclude people who are asking what might appear dumb questions, because I ask them all. <laughs> Andrew, earlier you had mentioned that you started connecting with agencies in order to be able to uh, attract more translation work. What was that like for you? How did you do that? Was it just a direct contact with these agencies? For those that are out there 
just trying to gather thoughts and ideas of how to expose their work or the services that they offer. What did you do initially? I began with a homemade website because I thought it was important from the very beginning to be able to point clients that I was approaching towards something which is out there. I mean, look back at the website now. It's probably, I haven't got it anymore. It's probably fairly horrible to look at, but it seemed neat, clean at the time. So that was my first thing, to have a calling card online. And then in terms of getting those clients, I use pros.com. And I'm not saying that because I'm working for them now, but I use them for everything at the beginning. I responded to very few of the ads in the kind of endless list that goes around of, of people looking for translators, because I figured from the beginning, there's going to be a whole bunch of people piling in on every ad. And I don't want to play that game. So from the beginning, I decided I'm not going to bid for work. I'm not going to put together endless requests, only to send them off where they'll go straight into a bin because 400 other people have applied at the same time. So largely out of laziness, because I didn't really want to do that five times a day, I went to the Blue Board, which is, I'm sure people know, but it's a, it's a list of agencies which are marked, given marks out of five by freelancers and usually on the grounds of whether they pay well, whether they pay fast, whether they're efficient, whether they're good in their instructions, whether they're clear in their, in their way of working. So I went to agencies in France because I was living in France. I systematically cherry-picked all of those which had a five. I wasn't interested in any which had a four or a three or a two, certainly not a one. And I went to a friend in the village where I was living who wasn't a translator, but I said, I need to apply to these agencies in French. My French was good, obviously, but it wasn't good enough to, to write an application in that respect. So I sat down with her in the bookshop and we wrote, looking back, was probably a fairly conventional, you know, I'm a translator, I'm efficient, I'm reliable, all that kind of stuff. And I sent it to everybody I could get my hands on. So I must have sent 400 of these. I expected 400 replies by the next day. For some reason, for some reason that didn't quite happen that way. And, but I did over time, I think I must have sent them out over 10 days because I got bored with sending out one after another. Um, I must have got two or three responses, but that took some time. I remember on day three, with zero answers, taking a quick dip. One of the things we'll come on to later maybe is that I have a slight tendency to, well, I had back then, to go up and down. So when I didn't get an immediate response, I'm quite impatient. I thought, this, this hasn't worked. Obviously, all my plan has come to nothing. I'm three days into my new job, and I'm not being bombarded with work. So this is terrible. So I went to the job agency in the town where I well, near where I live, near the village, and sat there with some bored 20-year-old woman, looked at my file and said, I spoke to her in French, and I was feeling nervous and a little bit down. And she said, well, there's work in supermarkets. And I left that day thinking I had a high-paying job. I was really well-paid in Bangladesh, business class flights, free accommodation. I went to Oxford. I had a 23-year career, career behind me and a, a new divorce behind me. I've given it all up to come here, and now all I'm being offered is work in supermarkets. And that was one of the lowest points of my entire life. But on day five or day six, one of those agencies got back to me. And of course, that gives you a huge injection of confidence. I did my first ever text, which it turned out was about the nuclear industry, which I knew nothing about. So I had another dip because I thought, oh my God, 
I've got work as a translator, but I hate it. I don't want to write about 10 times of 10 types of clay and nuclear rods. And besides, it's hard. I don't like nuclear power anyway. What the hell am I doing? But I wrote back to the agency. Again, one of the themes of my life and what I talk about whenever I speak to translators is taking the initiative and being proactive. So I wrote to the agency saying, this is really hard. I hope it's good enough. What I really want to do is art, museums, history, sociology, religion, film, tourism, anything which is a little bit more right-brained, a bit more creative. And something was right in the in the air that day because the agency owner said, okay, well, your work is obviously good enough just to pass on nuclear, even though there's a lot of feedback, but you obviously know what you want. And they came back to me and they offered me a first piece on the history of the Maritime Museum in Marseille, which was perfect. I did that quite well. And then she gave me more work. And then by that time, a second agency had written to me in response to my original email. And it went snowballing like that. And so I built up all my agencies through me approaching them and getting better and better at kind of honing my message so that it became less generic, a little bit bolder. And with the work behind me and the money now coming in, there was something in my, what I always call my state of being. So the way I'm quite um, conscious of the relationship between the way we feel and the way we think and what happens in the outside world. And I think there's a strong link. So my state of being was becoming more and more confident. I was enjoying my work. Money was coming in. And I think that then began to exercise its power. And I began to draw in more work simply through approaching agencies. Andrew, in 2014, you begin to post regularly in social media. What was that about? Why did you start to feel the need to do that? That's a good question. I had been a translator since 2009. And during those first five years, I had zero contact with social media for professional purposes. I used Facebook intermittently with all my friends from back in Bangladesh. And that was it. And I didn't post that often. And then by 2014, I'd built up a small team because I had too much work and too many direct clients. So I began to outsource after... Well, my first outsourcing was in 2011. Uh, I had a direct client from, from an industry that I didn't know. And so I went on pros again and found somebody to work with me. And that kind of built up. And one by the time I got to 2014, I had about six or seven people working regularly with me, all freelancers. And one of them said to me, you should check out Facebook, a group called The Water Cooler, because there's some fun stuff going on there. So I went on December the 1st, uh, and I think it was November 30th, 2014, and I saw three things immediately. One was that there was a lot of information, a lot of sharing, which was fantastic. On the less fantastic side, I saw that there was a lot of complaining, a lot of bitterness about the industry, the clients, they don't get us, they're exploiting us, agencies come from hell, all of that stuff, which we've seen you know, throughout the history of translators talking online. And the third thing I saw was that there was a fair amount of conflict in the way that people were speaking to each other, not about the world, but simply in terms of their interpersonal relationships. By that time, I'd been in a relationship for two years with a person who is now my wife, second wife, who is a coach. So I'd been totally immersed in a culture of taking responsibility, of making your life the way you want it, within reason, of fashioning things according to your own vision and of not complaining, but making changes. So if you put those things together, 
I saw something I didn't particularly like. I had the option of either leaving again the same day and thinking that's not for me or doing something about it. So I began to post pretty much on day two, on December the 1st, 2014. And I began to write stuff like, what if the problem isn't the client? What if it's our attitude? What if the rates we don't like could be changed to rates we do like? I look back now, you know, it seems a little bit naive to have walked into this new setting and begin to mouth off like that. But that's exactly what I did. And I noticed from day one that there was a response. Most of it was extremely positive. Those are people who are still kind of following me today. And there was a small but very vocal minority who was extremely negative about what I was writing from the very beginning. And they were... So basically, the positive responses came from people who began to think, well, yeah, maybe maybe I could change the way I'm looking at this. And those people I've worked with over the years, not directly, but who followed what I write and have been part of my groups, have doubled their income. They've come to see that there's a different way of looking at things, that you can seek out the clients that you want, that you can take charge of your rates to some extent within the framework that we all live in, that you can certainly turn down work that you don't want, and you can begin to be proactive, like I said, with agencies telling them what you do want. And the other group were people who had been complaining, in my view, for so long, that it become their identity. And they'd become slightly addicted to the chemistry, the biochemistry of anger and of complaint and of feeling a victim of the world. And those people faced with some loudmouth like me coming in saying, see it differently, then they scuttled away and basically began to confer together on why I was obviously a guru or a charlatan or why I didn't know what I was talking about. And I was just spreading happy talk to people. So that reaction was there from the beginning. Luckily, it's kind of, well, it's not disappeared, but it's gone off into a place where I don't even hear about it anymore. And I'm left with the group of people who are essentially thinking about their own lives and taking as much control as they can of their own destiny as freelancers. And those are the people I try to speak to. That is such an amazing story. And I think, um, yeah, there. I think there's people that definitely want to continue um, complaining. Andrew, bring us to present moment. What are you currently uh, working with? Uh, who are your clients? Who are the people that you're coaching currently? What's life look like for you now, present time? Okay. Right at the moment, I have, in the last year, worked with 80 clients. I, I run what is effectively now a boutique agency. And those clients range from, um, I've worked with a, an international airline. I've worked with a major museum in France, several uh, small companies, uh, a national tourist company, an international pet food agency. So these are proper businesses, uh, recruitment agencies, headhunting agencies who found me with very little marketing. Apart from a website, I've very rarely approached direct clients. They've all seemed to have found me, which has led to much of the thinking that I do about how this happens. So that's my translation work. Um, the company that I run makes, in terms of, uh, just because I have no problem with putting figures on these things, between 15 and 20,000 euros per month comes into my company. So that's a lot of translation for a guy who's just a freelancer. Obviously, I farm the workout and I pay, I think, good rates to the translators who work for me. But that's all built up from applying the approaches that I try and write about every day, which don't involve marketing, which don't involve cold calling, 
which don't involve even much writing on LinkedIn. I write a lot on Facebook, but I write for translators. But I think there's more to it than simply marketing. Branding is a part of it. I, I don't try to brand myself, but it, I think over, year, over the years, a certain brand has emerged around the way that I do my business. So that's, those are my clients. Pros.com itself is a big client of mine. I'm not employed by them in the sense that I contract my services to them. And they came to me largely as a result of my writing online. So one message I have, which is clear, is that I had different parts to my personality. I am a strong educational side. I'm a translator who's good enough. I wouldn't say a brilliant one. I don't think it's important to be the world's best translator. That's a part of it. You have to be good. If you're bad, you've got no chance. But if you're good, then that's just one part of the of the deal. So, yeah, so I work for pros.com because they have seen the the work that I've done. It's basically been six years of writing every day because after that beginning I wrote about, I set up a group called Standing Out and then I monetized that group, which caused, again, a little bit of fallout. But essentially, I've been writing for translators every day, including weekends, for the last six years, day in, day out. So that's built up a body of work and a kind of following. Um, so they are a big client of mine, uh, and we have a monthly monthly retainer. Yes, so one of the things that's become very important for me is for everyone who's a translator has a unique individual uh, fingerprint. In my case, there was a strong educational element. There was an element of being a good translator, a strong writing element, because I also worked as a journalist in the past, and I find it fairly easy to write stuff. And my experience as a teacher, not just in communicating messages, but in managing people. And so I've always thought from the beginning that every translator should take a good look at all the elements that make them up, not just the translation part, but their passions, their interests, their gifts, their talents, their backstory. And if you can craft something out of that, which suits you perfectly, then you're onto a winner. And from the beginning, I didn't really articulate this in this way, but I can see now very clearly looking back that as a writing, teaching, educating, group managing translator, I've now ended up 10 years, 11 years into my job with a working life that reflects like a mirror the person who I am. And I think that young translators or beginning translators, obviously, you need to learn the ropes. You need to do the 10,000 miles which involves working on texts that might not inspire you, which works involves working with agencies that you might move away from one day, like I have. But keeping in mind that vision of a job that's perfectly suited to you and that nobody else in the world could do in exactly the same way as you, and never feeling like, oh, I'm just a translator and there are so many of us. I think that's the worst mentality to adopt. The best one is to think, what makes me different? How can I stand out? And not just through quality, or efficiency, because we all say that. But what is it about me that makes me a little bit different? And how can I factor that into the working profile I want to develop? Andrew, that is such great piece of advice. I think particularly during these times when a lot of us are stuck at home and really having these deep thoughts, uh, perhaps even about career. Um, and I think that's information and just advice in general that 
a lot of us could use and be able to apply currently. The story that brought me to you, Andrew, was a post on uh, one of your social media platforms that had to do with EIPS. Could you break that down for us and talk to us a little bit about your inspiration regarding this particular post? Yes, there was. Um, I remember I was writing a series of stories about how I began. Because I think that stories are a good way as opposed to just advice uh, given to people. So I charted the story that I've told you today, but over several posts of how my career got off the ground. And I remember being faced with empty inbox. And then the EIPS, which I, I coined, became empty inbox panic syndrome. So I was trying to get my head back into that space at the beginning when my inbox would go quiet for a day or two, even with five, six, eight, ten agencies. And I would simply panic. I would think that I'd done a text wrong, that all my clients had conspired together to, to cut me out of translation, that I would never work again, that I was obviously an imposter, not cut out for this, that I'd be begging or playing saxophone on the street uh, by this time next week. And that was such a strong feeling that never really went away. Luckily, it's no longer a thing for me because my prose work alone is well remunerated and, and kind of keeps me comfortable. Maybe that's a bad thing. But anyway, um, and so it's simply no longer an issue because my translation work, which is still going, is now a kind of bonus. But back then, I remember reading so many posts about giving well-meaning advice about what you should do if your work dries up. You know, you should mark it, you should tidy your desk and then tidy your desk again and then mark it some more and then walk your dog and then tidy your desk for the third time that morning. And it never worked for me because I would, during the worst periods, if it went on at the beginning for three or four days before I met my wife when I was alone in a small village, I, I would go into a kind of paralysis at times and just think, and sometimes spend the afternoon lying on the bed thinking, work's got to come, work's got to come, without doing anything proactive about it. So kind of contradicting, in a way, my own advice, because since then, I've learned to be much more proactive. Now I don't have those gaps, because at, at some point in your career, you become established enough that work just keeps on coming in. And now if I have a day off without any new offers coming in, as we've had during these coronavirus days, uh, I just enjoy that and go and sit on the balcony. So it's no longer an issue for me. But at the beginning, I wanted to reach out to those people who might be looking at translators who are apparently more successful, more established. And I wanted to remind myself and them of the fact that, that could be really difficult to experience. I still think that the advice that I mentioned about marketing, tidying my desk, and researching new worker opportunities is good advice. And it might work for many, many people. But just in my case, it just sent me spiraling down, not in a dangerous way, but certainly into a kind of gloomy place where I would simply wait it out until work came. So I wouldn't give that advice to anybody now, but it kind of helped me survive. What advice would you give in order to be able to get out of that spiraling moment? What is it then that uh, language professionals could do to try to get themselves out? There are two things. I would say that I've become much more aware, married to a coach, and as my own learning and development as a person has uh, continued, of what I would call the inner work. 
and this might not speak directly to all translators, but the work I do on journaling, on gratitude, on yoga, and on meditation is absolutely fundamental to, to my take on life. And if you took those things away, I'm sure I'd crumble like a house of cards. So I kind of do a lot of work on building up that, not confidence, because I'm pretty confident anyway, but just that, that inner equilibrium, which puts me in a mental and emotional place every day where I'm experiencing life with a state that ranges from pleasantness to elation. And I think that has a massive impact on the way I interact with people and on the signal, like a radio station, that I send out. But that's obviously the fruit of years of work. In terms of easy to apply uh, practical things, I would say, you know, aim for as much equilibrium as you can. And whether you get that through running, through walking your dog, through yoga, through music, but it's important to keep that mind space, which doesn't panic, unlike what I did before. Um, and then I would say, yes, those people were right to say, be systematic, look at the blue board, write emails which have a little spark of personality. Uh, don't write the same email that everyone writes, which is, hello, dear sir, madam, I would like to be part of your team. I offer the following services, and then I do the following 58 specialities, and you will find me reliable and efficient. Because everybody says that. So you need a different angle. Agencies want translators, maybe a little bit less right at the moment, but they still need translators to survive. But they need people who are going to translate well. But then again, that covers just about 90% of the people who apply. But So they need to some way of seeing that this person is going to be good and fun to work with. Because it's not just about the text. Pro project managers, agency owners want to work with people who are good to work with. So I would say do that marketing. And then also, if you've got a specialism, go on to LinkedIn to develop your own knowledge. Uh, my specialism, I mean, even an area which interests you more than others. I mean, specialists range from people who've been doctors and lawyers or chemists and have 20 years industry experience down to people who've suddenly discovered a penchant for tourism texts, but are not world experts. So whatever, whether it's tourism or the environment or sociology or religion or whatever it is that interests you or the law, go out and keep researching your area. Try to network on LinkedIn or join in groups or comment on people who are thought leaders. And over time, I mean, none of this happens overnight. It's easy for me to talk after 11 years, but, you know, at the beginning, it took a long time. Over time, you build up awareness and expertise. And if you're doing that inner work and reaching out to people in a way that communicates enthusiasm and energy and zest for life, and you're doing the mechanical work of amassing addresses, finding out who's doing what, finding out what's happening in your industry and trying to respond to that and being proactive. A combination of all of those things should bear fruit. It'll bear fruit for different people at different times. But that's, that's what I would say to people now. I think particularly during these times that we are currently facing, the aspect of the inner work is something that perhaps we may not all think about as 
part of a strategy to be able to eventually systematically develop a plan. Uh, but I think it personally, I feel that it's, it's just such an important piece that oftentimes we leave out. So the fact that you mm-hmm. mentioned that as the number one thing, um, mm-hmm. I think for very many, when you're in panic mode, what you want to do is go outside, right? It, meaning yeah. you, you want to react, you want to, let, maybe I need to do this keep, to keep busy. And so we get into that panic mode and you're sending out material in that panic state, which may sound like many others, like you just mentioned, right? You want to differentiate, but in order to do that, your state of mind needs to be clear. And so we have to plan for that clearness because it doesn't just automatically come because we say, I need to be in the right frame of mind. We have to train it to do that. So um, yeah, the fact that you mentioned that as number one, I think absolutely sound advice. Let's get into the habit of uh, doing our inner work first so that when these moments do come, we know how to go back do the work, do the inner work, and then strategically be able to send something or just plan something out. Yes, absolutely. But I think that just as I tried to say that when you're in an enthusiastic, pleasant, uh, fine with the world mode, you send out a certain signal and a radio signal. When you're in panic mode, you also send out a rather desperate signal. And I've seen this day in, day out, even on social media, from the way people respond to things. And and that communicates itself. I think that is felt by clients, and I think it gets in the way of your your chances. It's difficult to prove. I mean, there's a whole science behind this of quantum physics, but you know, it may not be the time or the place to go into that right now. <laughs> I'm a strong believer in in that causal connection between the way you feel, the way you think, and what produces itself, or manifests itself in a way in your life. I mean. It's not just about thinking, I would like new clients and then waking up in the morning and finding your inbox full of messages. It's, it's more like going to the gym over a sustained period of time and watching your body develop. In the same way you do this work day in, day out. I wake up at five every morning. I spend two hours without touching social media, two hours on reading, meditation, yoga. And I do it at five, rain or shine. It doesn't matter whether I've been out the night before. And that's something that is simply a part of my day. And I would say now it's enabled me, for example, to live and experience this coronavirus period with almost zero fluctuation in my own outlook on the world. And also, maybe more personally, uh, two months ago, I had a heart attack. I'm, I'm pretty fit and healthy and youngish in my outlook. And I eat. I'm a vegan. I eat extremely well. I do my yoga, meditation, all the rest of it. But I was out walking near my house and I felt a pain in my chest, which I'd never had before. Being fairly in tune with my body, I thought, this isn't right. Jumped on my motorcycle, drove to a hospital, checked myself in and had an operation within an hour. And the doctor told me 40% of people who have heart attacks die. But by that evening, I was back on social media and chatting to the people that I, I chat to often. And they discharged me the next day or two days later. And I experienced that too with a fair degree of equanimity thanks to all of this inner work. So yeah, I, I'm pretty convinced that it's an important part of, of life. Yeah, I would think I'm I'm a little in, in shock mode right now. I think that uh, many of us would say absolutely. Um, by that evening, you were already on social media. I mean, in the sense of already connecting with the world, you know, it wasn't 
something that kept you in, in some certain mood or some certain mode. So um, again, yeah, we go back to that inner work is crucial. And I think you mentioned really briefly, uh, but also very important is that being in tune with yourself, with your body, I think it speaks to us in some, sometimes in ways such as yours, which is, you know, pretty, pretty loudly per se, but sometimes subtly, right. And um, being in tune with, with our bodies is uh, absolutely important because it, it can tell us something that we perhaps don't even think about or can easily overlook. Um, So thank you so much for having shared that. Andrew, what does Andrew Morris, the person, Hope to inspire in others. Interesting question. I never set out to inspire. I set out to be as fully myself as possible. And that's what draws people in, I think. Or that's what I get told. Um, I'm still kind of like a little kid in some ways, enthusiastic about lots of stuff, passionate about change and transformation, passionate about ideas that help us live more interesting and more enjoyable lives. And that. I think comes across to people who then like to follow. But if I had to put a finger on it, I would say, coming back to what we said earlier, discover who you are and what is your contribution to the world because it's different from anybody else's. You've got this voice talent, so you're doing this, and that's great. That's a perfect example of a translator who's discovered another side because you have a pleasant speaking voice, so you use that in in this way. And I know lots of people who discover aspects of their character and their gifts like that. Obviously, working on inner work, which I call your state, there's also something about the story you tell yourself. And again, the best place for this is maybe not necessarily talking to translators, but going on, listen to TED Talks and discovering that whole world. The story you tell yourself about money, about what you can achieve in life, about how successful you can be. Is success a dirty word or a wonderful thing? Is money a dirty word or a wonderful thing? Are you responsible for what happens to you? Or does the world just serve up stuff which you have to deal with, with all its ups and downs? So that I encapsulate under story. And I think there's a lot of work also on that for people to do, to go discover people who think about the human condition. And YouTube offers up millions of these people for free to find the people who speak to you and work on that. And so that what I would like to inspire in people is a sense of being in charge, of being able to be proactive in their own lives, to set their own conditions, again, within reason. You can't say, I want a dollar a word and simply expect the world to sit up. But you can certainly push and chisel and chip away at your own working life until it resembles you, until it resembles something that makes you feel comfortable, that also challenges you. So it's that sense of acting on the world rather than being subject to it, which is what suffuses everything I've ever written from that very first post. Beautiful advice. Thank you so much. I think that oftentimes, just like you said, we perhaps may not 
ever think that we will be inspiring others or touching the lives of others. But I think with the information even that you share, with the information that you post, with reaching out to others in the hopes of being able to help them, uh, make them better, you you are inspiring others. So I commend you for your work because you could have easily become an isolated translator. Right. And uh, just focus on your work. And instead, you decided to share your story on different platforms, including this one, which I am ever so grateful for this conversation. And uh, yes, I think that you're doing amazing things. And I wish you nothing but greatness to continue and lots and lots of health. And before we go, though, Andrew, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Because there is a vast amount of work out there of messages, beautiful messages that you have, inspiring uh, information, uh, but also professional um, things that you just created an online platform, I do believe, right? Right on prose. Uh, share with us where our listeners can find out more. Right. I have uh, my own personal website, which is andrewmorris.es, because I live in Spain, so far as Spain. Then one extra piece of advice I would give to, to, especially to beginning translators, but even to those who are seasoned, is to become part of a community. And these communities on Facebook, for example, the pros.com Facebook group, which is called Translators and Interpreters, and then brackets, pros.com, is where I am every day. That's where I write every morning. And we have people in there with 25 years experience and zero experience. And I have ensured through fairly heavy-handed managerial approach over the the year that I've been doing it, that we are a space where you can be comfortable, where people don't take each other down, where they can disagree freely, but anybody who gets too aggressive or personal or toxic is simply kicked out. Anybody can have any range of opinions, but that uh, respect for others is a central part. And as an ex-teacher, I have zero problem with enforcing that. So I would encourage people to join that group. I have a group of people who are slightly more established called the Translation Mastermind. That's a paying group, but also on Facebook. But they're slightly more chilled out about life and very easy with each other's differing opinions and comfortable with money. So they're people who are kind of more, in a sense, more developed along the, you know, I'm okay and other people are okay to be whatever they want to be, a line of thinking. Then I have, I'm active writing for prose. I write a series of translation postcards, which are uh, portraits of translators around the world in places from Cairo to Cuba and from the northernmost part of Norway to New York. So I write those. I also have uh, posts on the LinkedIn and Instagram pages of prose.com. I can send you the links. Yes. Where, which is a series called Translators of the World, which are kind of quite colorful pictures of people, which allow them to advertise themselves. So I'm writing in lots of places every day. But I would start with the prose.com Facebook group. Uh, obviously, I would recommend people join prose.com, which is free to register. The services are paying when you want to access higher services. But that community is, is a great place. 37,000 people, 87,000 on the LinkedIn group. But the LinkedIn group is much quieter. It's just me posting and a few other people, not much dialogue. 
So if you want dialogue, if you want to learn to interact with other translators because you're isolated or because you have questions, then the Facebook group is where I am most often, those two groups. Andrew, I want to thank you for your time and for your willingness to share your story with others. Thank you for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. I must admit, this is one of my favorite conversations I've had to date. Andrew not only speaks about his amazing career trajectory and some of the professional challenges he's encountered along the way, he also opened up about some personal challenges that perhaps many of us can relate to. It's a deep conversation, one that I'll treasure for years to come. You heard him talk about his own personal hierarchy of values. And while yours may differ, what's important is that we acknowledge what they are and what we can do to improve on them. Make time this week to sit down and really think about this. You have the ability to change your perspective on things. Take the initiative. Be proactive. It's time. Thank you so very much for joining me once again. I hope you have an amazing rest of the week. Till next time, tell your story. Brand the Interpreter. Bye-bye.